This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love It podcast. Today is our second of three episodes discussing the great Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. Last week, we discussed the mysterious origins of the poem, the mysterious author, the time and place the poem was likely written, uh, the time and the place it was likely set, which are 200 years apart, by the way. And we discussed the first 450 lines of the poem where we meet the hero, Beowulf. Well, don't forget, we talked about J.R.R. Tolkien, the Anglo-Saxon scholar and author of The Lord of the Rings, who is largely responsible for elevating this ancient poem, a poem not even written in understandable English, and to become from what was a maybe a little archaeological curiosity to become part of the mainstream English-speaking curriculum almost anywhere in the world, We also talked about a few aspects of Scandinavian culture and and that help us understand the poem, specifically the importance of the Mead Hall and Weirgeld, the concept of the death price. Well, today we will discuss the poem starting with line 450 through line 1700. Focusing on the central part of the poem, we will talk about two of the three fights in the poem, Beowulf's fights with the monsters Grendel and Grendel's mother. Um, If this poem is about symmetry and we are arguing that it is, then today we will strike at the heart of the poem. Yes, the fight with Grendel's mother within that horrifying creature-filled lake of chaos is the midway point of the poem. So, In a very physical sense, it's at the heart of the poem. But when we think about how old this poem is and how much study and thought that's gone into it, we have to be mindful that there are so many ways to think about the poem. We're going to focus primarily on looking at it archetypally, but also we want to include a few insights uh, from a few feminist critics that they've brought to the understanding of the poem. Grindel's mother is a woman, but she is not the only woman the poet Features And today we will meet two women that the poet features. Let's begin by reading the lines um, where we left off. 
Hothgar, the aging good king, has built a mead hall. It's been under attack for 12 years in a row. The attacking monster Grendel is described as a fiend out of hell, a banished son of Cain who rules in defiance for right for 12 winters. Beowulf is a geek has heard of Hrothgar's trouble from across the ocean, or Whale Road, as they call it, and has come with 14 things to seek glory found in killing this monster. As he presents himself to Hrothgar, he uh, identifies himself as Hygelic's kinsman, a king Hrothgar knows, and ends up with these words. I do want to add that we are using the American pronunciation <laughs> and even that we're likely butchering. So please forgive us with all all these names. <laughs> oh my gosh. But let's start with line 442. If Grendel wins, it will be a gruesome day. He will glut himself on the geats in the war hall, swoop without fear on that flower of manhood as on others before. Then my face won't be there to be covered in death. He will carry me away as he goes to ground, gorged and bloodied. He will run gloating with my raw corpse and feed on it alone in a cruel frenzy, fouling his moor nest. No need then to lament for it long or lay out my body. If the battle takes me, send back this breast webbing that Wayland fashioned and Hrethel gave me to Lord Hygelac. Fate goes ever as fate must. Fate goes ever as fate must. <laughs> what kind of voice is that? Well, it's the fate word. It's the fate uh, voice. <laughs> yeah, because the word he uses for fate there is this Anglo-Saxon term, weird, W-Y-R-D. This is another one of those cultural words that's worth taking a moment to think about. It sounds like the word weird, W-E-I-R-D. Uh, but Gary, tell us a little bit about weird with a Y. Uh, what's weird? Are you weird? Am I weird? Am I making a weird face? Do you like weird music? I mean, we use this word weird in so many different ways. Uh, but it's a our weird is kind of a far cry from Anglo-Saxon weird. Or am I being weird? Oh. <laughs> You're telling dad jokes and making yeah. dad jokes. Uh, and you're confusing me for one. Uh, but the concept of weird, W-Y-R-D, is another one of those pagan ideas that is still a part of our heritage as English speakers, you know, albeit in a very diluted way. Our word weird with the E-I is light, and it can be humorous, uh, like the way you used it. But in Anglo-Saxon pagan concept of weird, it was a central tenet of belief you know, and it was mostly associated with the coming of death. Um, it's this idea that there's something out there that is determining our future or really our time to die. And it's kind of preordained, uh, but not by God. It's really, it's ordained by weird. Um, and as Beowulf says, fate or weird goes ever as weird must. Um, or, or weird, it just does what it wants. I mean, <laughs> Historically, it's likely Weird was originally a goddess or a demigoddess, but over time, uh, the concept evolved to be this more abstract spiritual concept that isn't um, a personified being necessarily. In Beowulf, the word is used nine times, and all of them are associated with death. So uh, we can think of Weird as kind of this grim reaper who comes whenever he or she wishes, but... Uh, there are situations that God can ward him or her off if he wants to. Um, this Christian poet believes in both concepts. Weird rules except when God intervenes. We see weird embedded in our culture today when we say things like, well, 
if it's my time to go, it's my time to go. I mean, who is making that decision uh, that it's your time to go? Well, the Anglo-Saxons would call that weird. (laughs) Well, the poet's use of this concept, weird, really, I think, is just another example of what we talked about before when Christianity and, and paganism kind of meshing together side by side in the story. Definitely. Uh, Weird is absolutely a pagan concept. The poet and his audience just accept. Uh, But this Christian poet is modifying it and saying, yes, weird does exist, but God can control it. In Beowulf, the word weird often shows up side by side with the word Almighty God. So we see this side by side coexistence of of two very opposite worldviews. And, you know, from a historical perspective, um, it's easier to understand Beowulf more as an elegy uh, than an epic poem. I mean, it's celebrating a well lived life, but uh, even the best of us do not escape weird. (laughs) You know, Anglo Saxons and really all Norsemen. Uh, understood that weird was in control and death would always win. And and even Norse mythology is fatalistic. No one escapes. I mean, we can run, but we will never hide from weird. (laughs) No, I get it. You know, Anna, Lizzie, and I went to get facials the other day to celebrate Lizzie's birthday. We were in this beautiful environment. We drank sparkling water. We sat in cushy chairs. And then Olga, the facial lady, came to take me back for what was termed a special age defying facial i laid on the table and asked olga olga are you gonna make me look just like lizzie with this treatment and she looked at me with no smile and said no (laughs) and then i said well i'm here trying to ward off you know death and aging and she responded and said yes and you will lose (laughs) (laughs) she sounded like she came straight from the mead hall that um you know And that is totally a weird thing to say. Uh, To quote Beowulf, weird goes ever as weird must. Uh, You know, there's nothing Olga or or anyone can do about it. And when we're young, we're not supposed to feel much fear of weird. And uh, the Beowulf of the first part of the poem is a young man. He speaks bravely about fate before he encounters the monsters and Beowulf is bold throughout the entire poem, uh, but here with Hrothgar, he speaks confidently about Weird, and we learn uh, from his dinner conversation at dinner in the Mead Hall with Unferth that he has faced and defeated death many times, and um, he tells this incredible story about swimming while holding a sword and wearing armor and all the while engaging in direct combat with sea beasts. I mean, Weird is on his side, and Time and again, and it says this, time and again, foul things attacked me, lurking and stalking, but I lashed out, gave as good as I got with my sword. (laughs) My flesh was not for feasting on. There would be no monsters gnawing and gloating over their banquet at the bottom of the sea. Instead, in the morning, mangled and sleeping the sleep of the sword, they slopped and floated like the ocean's leavings. (laughs) Wow. I know. I like how they... uh poet gets so graphic it's not just here and it's fun when grendel attacks beowulf we get another gruesome description of their fight and how beowulf kills him but before we get to the fight scene the poet devotes attention to that meal that you just referenced in the mead hall we get to meet queen rothal 
That's Rothgar's wife. Queen Rothhall has a very central role in this meal, and she exerts a lot of power in her role as a hostess and as a gift giver. She engages and she serves the thanes personally. I mean, this this demonstration of the Anglo-Saxon understanding of female power, and it's different, and it looks differently than male power and serves a different purpose in Anglo-Saxon society, and it's a very important purpose. I mean, Wilfowl commands quite a few lines from the poet. Rothgar, King Rothgar, the ring giver, is the model ideal king. In some ways, I think we'll see that he can be compared to the dragon who is an aberration. Rothlaw, the peace weaver, the queen, she's the model queen, and she can be compared with Grendel's mother, who really is an anti-queen. Grendel's mother is the expression of female power at its worst. Her aggression almost takes down Beowulf. Queen Rothlaw is in the hall, as well as Queen Hyg later on in the text. They're both very powerful, but they don't wage war. They weave peace. They weave peace among the thanes, and they weave peace among peoples. They build alliances. They make men engage properly. They restrain them. Withlaw's whole reason for being married to Rothgar was to bring peace. And in the meat hall, she's described as moving through with this drinking bowl, weaving social cohesion. It's the fundamental role of a queen. Bring peace to feuding men who can't make peace on their own. This, of course, is the exact contrast to Grendel's mother, who's an avenger, desperate for revenge. And although, you know, revenge is at the heart of Anglo-Saxon and Viking culture during this time period, a good queen weaves peace, not war. And although Grendel or a male aggressor may seem oppressive and dangerous, the poet clearly suggests and really i know this isn't this is in other parts of anglo-saxon literature too it's not just this poet that says this but female aggression is deadly it's indirect it's subversive it's more difficult to eradicate and maybe more dangerous than the male counterpart well, there you go. There's your girl power. I mean, you know, there's a lot of research from 21st century psychology that I think agrees with the poet. But before we talk about Grendel's mother, uh, let's look at Grendel. Um, Grendel's attack is based solely on overpowering his opponent in the dark. Quote, out of the night came the shadow stalker, stealthy and swift. Now, I'll, I'll begin with line 710. In off the moors, down through the mist bands, God-cursed Grendel came greedily loping. The bane of the race of men roamed forth, hunting for a prey in the high hall. Under the cloud, murk, he moved towards it until it shone above him a sheer keep of fortified gold. Nor was that the first time he had scouted the grounds of Throfgar's dwelling. Although never in his life before or since did he find harder fortune or hall defenders. Spurned and joyless, he journeyed on ahead and arrived at the bond. The iron-braced door turned on its hinge when his hands touched it. Then his rage boiled over. He ripped open the mouth of the building, maddening for blood, pacing the length of the powdered floor. And with his loathsome tread, while a baleful light, flame more than light, flared from his eyes, he saw many men in the mansion sleeping. A ranked company of kinsmen and warriors quartered together, and his glee was demonic, picturing the mayhem. Before morning, he would rip life from limb and devour them, feed on their flesh, 
But his fate that night was due to change. His days of ravening had come to an end. You know, remember, Grendel is the son of Cain, and this is not a throwaway comment. Cain in the Bible murdered for envy. His brother did better than he did, and instead of bringing up his game, the Bible says this, and this is God talking to Cain, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Well, obviously, Cain chooses not to rule over it because in the next sentence, he kills his brother. But if we look at this text, we see adjectives that describe Grindel in this kind of the same way. He's greedy. He's joyless. He's filled with boiling rage. These are attributes of Cain. And after Grindel kills people, he doesn't even know, but he hates them because they're joyful. It says that he feels glee demonic glee. This is the poet's picture of evil. Envy breeds bitterness. Bitterness breeds rage. Rage leads to murder. Murder breeds demonic glee. There is no doubt that Grendel is evil. He is not misunderstood. We should not pity him. Beowulf is staring into the glaring eyes of evil. And so the archetypal question becomes, When evil is wrecking havoc in the Mead Hall, if an evil monster is brutally attacking and bringing destruction, how does one heroically face the evil? The answer in this text, and it's something that we miss if we're looking at the translated text, uh, and all of us are, well, most all of us are, but our word monster comes from monstrum. And that word is not original to the text because it didn't even exist until the 14th century. The poet of Beowulf, he used another word besides monster that we translate into this modern word monster. The word that the poet uses to describe Grendel is this word, A-G-L-O-E-C-A, Oglioca, which doesn't mean much to any of us, except where we see it in other places in this poem. The word Oklioka, the one that I just said is used to reference Grendel, it's later used to reference the dragon, but it's also the word that the poet uses to reference Beowulf. It means big, extraordinary things, and it's used to describe all three, Grendel, the dragon, but unusually Beowulf. So in other words, let's simplify this down. If you want to fight a monster, you got to be a monster. You must be this big, extraordinary thing. Well, for me, I'm small, and that seems unfair. How can I ever be a monster to match the monsters that I face? (laughs) (laughs) And yet you can. Um, All of us can become uh, this monster for good. I mean, it's a very important psychological concept, and uh, it is the very definition of courage. And, you know, interestingly, in The Hobbit, Tolkien's hero, Bilbo Baggins, who faces the dragon, is smaller than you are. Now, his feet are bigger than yours. Oh, that's good. Well, he's a hobbit, and as big of a physical contrast with Beowulf as artistically possible, which I think is an accurate way to think about being a monster, because physical strength is a visual representation of strength, which is uh, much more abstract and difficult to understand in real life. But 
Even in The Hobbit, well before Bilbo meets Smog, he has to face other terrors, and he saves men who are physically much bigger than he is in the process. And, of course, the dragon that he ultimately faces is bigger than all of them. And, you know, being a monster is a willingness to stand steadfast with unflinching courage in the face, really, of of horror and assault in whatever form. And uh, that's something internal, you know, although this story expresses it outwardly. In Beowulf, strength is imagined as equally large hero. You know, Beowulf has the strength of 30 men in each grip, but obviously that's a metaphor. And uh, Beowulf becomes a hero not because he's big, but because he has the courage and the will to face the monster. And, you know, he takes on the responsibility to do so, and and he enters Herat voluntarily, and, and he voluntarily wrestles with evil. Might and cannily, Hagelik's kinsman was keenly watching for the first move the monster would make. Nor did the creature keep him waiting, but struck suddenly and started in. He grabbed and mauled a man on his bench, bit into his bone lappings, bolted down his blood and gorged on him in lumps, leaving the body utterly lifeless, eaten up hand and foot. Venturing closer, his talon was raised to attack Beowulf, for he lay on the bed. He was bearing in with open claw when the alert hero's comeback and arm lock forestalled him utterly. The captain of evil discovered himself. Beowulf's fight within a hand grip harder than anything he had ever encountered in any man on the face of the earth. Every bone in his body quailed and recoiled, but he could not escape. He was desperate to flee to his den and hide with his devil's litter, for in all his days he had never been clamped or cornered like this. Then Hygelac's trusty retainer recalled his bedtime speech, sprang to his feet and got a firm hold. Fingers were bursting, the monster backtracking, the man overpowering. The dread of the land was desperate to escape, to take a roundabout road and flee to his lair in the fen. I'll, I'll script over the description of the struggle. Uh, but despite it to say, they wrestle all over the meat hall, and some of the other thanes try to jump in, but their swords can't even penetrate Grindel's skin. Finally, though, Beowulf prevails, and I'll pick up on line 809. Then he who had harrowed the hearts of men with pain and affliction in former times, and had given offense also to God, found that his bodily powers failed him. Hygelac's kinsman kept him helplessly locked in a hand grip. As long as either lived, he was hateful to the other. The monster's whole body was in pain. A tremendous wound appeared on his shoulder. Sinews split and the bone lappings burst. Beowulf was granted the glory of winning. Grendel was driven into the fan banks, fatally hurt to his desolate lair. His days were numbered. The end of his life was coming over him. He knew it for certain, and one bloody clash had fulfilled the dearest wishes of the Danes. The man who had lately landed among them, proud and sure, had purged the hall, kept it from harm. He was happy with his night work and the courage he had shown. The geek captain had boldly fulfilled his boast to the Danes. He had healed and relieved a huge distress, unremitting humiliations. The hard fate they'd been forced to undergo, no small affliction." Clear proof of this could be seen in the hand of the hero, displayed high up near the roof, the whole of Grendel's shoulder and arm. 
His awesome grasp. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what an image. You know, Beowulf wins by yanking Grendel's shoulder and arm out of his body and letting him bleed out as he stumbles home. And, you know, then Beowulf then hangs up the shoulder and arm in the meat hall as a trophy. Of course you would do that, right? <laughs> well, by morning, word had gotten out, and everyone comes to see the trophy. Beowulf's reputation has been made. He has the glory he came for. Then morning came, and many a warrior gathered, as I've heard, around the gift hall, clan chiefs flocking from far and near down wide-ranging roads, wandering greatly at the monster's footprints. His fatal departure was regretted by no one who witnessed his trail, the ignominious marks of his flight where he'd skulked away, exhausted in spirit and beaten in battle, bloody in the path, hauling his doom to the demon's mirror. The bloodshot water wallowed and surged, and there were loathsome upthrows and overturnings of waves and gore and wounds slurry. With his death upon him, he had lived deep into his marsh den, drowned out his life and his heathen soul. Hell claimed him there. Man, there's a lot of cool words in there. <laughs> Ignominious? Oh, my goodness. Sculpt? <laughs> yes, and as you'd expect, there is a huge celebration party, a poet or a scope, as they called it. A song is sung, singing about Beowulf's newfound glory, compares him to another dragon slayer, and all of this ends with a grand speech by Hrothgar, who thanks God. And he says this, I have often honored smaller achievements, recognized warriors not nearly as worthy, lavished rewards on the less deserving, but you have made yourself immortal by your glorious action. May the God of ages continue to keep and requite you well. Beowulf responds with a speech of his own. My plan was to pounce, pin him down in a tight grip and grapple him to death. Have him panting for life, powerless, and claps in my bare hands, his body in thrall. You know, he goes on to say that the Lord allowed Grendel to struggle fiercely, but ultimately, and I quote, he bought his freedom at a high price, for he left his hand and arm and shoulder to show he had been here, a cold comfort for having coming among us, and now he won't be long for this world. <laughs> you know, at this banquet, Beowulf and, and all the Geet things, things are rewarded with some really nice gifts. Uh, Beowulf's hall includes a gold standard, an embroidered banner, a breast mail, a helmet, you know, a sword, eight horses with gold bridles. I mean, there's, there's more than that. Well, it was joyous. And, and the queen gets the last words. Enjoy this drink, my most generous lords, and raise up your goblet. Entertain the geats duly and gently. Discourse with them. Be open-handed, happy, and fond. Relish their company, but recollect as well all of the boons that have been bestowed upon you. The bright court of Herod has been cleansed. She goes on to say, as wonderful as Beowulf is, he won't be the next king. <laughs> That's for her sons. She gives him a necklace and more gifts, and when she finishes talking, there's a round of applause. We're reminded of the model of a good queen, because we have to prepare for the opposite. Beowulf heads out for the evening. Well, that night, uh, you know, Grendel's mother comes to Herod to attack, but her attack is really different. Um, she doesn't strike 30 men the way Grendel did. She targets one man who happens to be Rothgar's best friend, a man by the name of Ashra. 
And on her way out, she takes with her Grendel's arm and shoulder. <laughs> Only a mother would do that. Oh, my goodness. You know, Hothgar immediately you know, tracks down Beowulf and asks him to pursue Grendel's mother. Aishwer, he says, was a soulmate, a true mentor, my right-hand man when the ranks clashed. He challenges Beowulf by saying, Bear up and be the man I expect you to be. <laughs> you know, there's a couple things I want to point out uh, here. First of all, notice how differently the female fighter wages war. She forces Beowulf into her mirror. Uh, you know, that's tactically different. Um, the author distinguishes male and female aggression. And, you know, although gender discussions are difficult sometimes, uh, traditionally men are considered more aggressive than women, but... Research shows, and my experience shows, that is not true. <laughs> Women are actually just uh, as if not more aggressive than their male counterparts. It, it really just expresses itself differently, you know, like we see expressed by this poet a thousand years ago, I'd like to point out. <laughs> well, when you say uh, research, you know, what data are you thinking about? <laughs> well, you know, I'm not going to quote sources, but, but you know, there's a lot. And, and I don't want to digress too, mu- digress too much on this, but uh, one example would be the data on cyber aggression and tracking cyber aggression in males versus females. And, you know, uh, women are highly aggressive online and not just towards other females, if, if you were thinking that. But it's not just online. Female aggression can be physical and violent, but it's really often characterized by being more indirect, which is uh, what we see in the the story. Um, Beowulf and his thanes pursue Grendel's mother towards her mirror. As they get to the water, they find Asherah's head at the foot of the cliff. Uh, You know, not much is more aggressive than a violent beheading. (laughs) Uh, No, that's brutal. Uh, But here they are at the edge of the water. Archetypally, you know, water represents chaos. And if you notice, the world of Beowulf is always surrounded by water. At some point, there's water everywhere. But here we see a common archetype, water, which represents chaos. And it's going to merge with another common archetype, the underworld. Beowulf makes a choice. Does he or does he not willingly undertake this trip to the underworld. But to get there, he must go through water. Sheer, horrifying chaos. A watery hell. It's an expression, it's an awful expression of hell. I want to read it. The water was infested with all kinds of reptiles. There were writhing sea dragons and monsters slouching on slopes by the cliff. Serpents and wild things such as those that often surface at dawn to roam the sail road and doom the voyage. <laughs> Not good. No. And, you know, this time, though, uh, unlike the last time, he takes weapons and he needs them. And, you know, I don't want to digress too much again on female aggression. <laughs> um, don't or I'll aggress you. <laughs> right. Well, this is a little side note. Uh, in in psychology classes of whenever I instruct about the female aggression, the guys have no idea it's going on. They're clueless. <laughs> it's indirect. It is. And, you know, anyway, uh, the, the poet's very intentional uh, about this. And I, I say this from a historical perspective as well as a psychological one. The Anglo-Saxons were very concerned with female power. 
Uh, they did not trust women. They saw women <laughs> with terrible. they had special powers to bewitch men. Uh, and there's a lot of warnings for men to be weary of uh, of women. And when Beowulf was ready to beat Grendel man to man, when he goes to face Grendel's mother, he wears mighty hand forged mail, which saves his life. You know, a helmet and the ancient sword of Unferth gave him. Uh, it, it was a weapon that had never failed in its long life. In other words, he prepared as best he could with the best resources available for this fight. Then it goes on to say, he dived into the heaving depths of the lake. It was the best part of a day before he could see the solid bottom. Quickly, the one who haunted those waters, who had scavenged and gone her gluttonous rounds for a hundred seasons, sensed a human observing her outlandish lair from above. So she lunged and clutched and managed to catch him in her brutal grip, but his body, for all that, remained unscathed. The mesh of the chainmail saved him on the outside. Her savage talons failed to rip the web of his war shirt. You know, we don't have time to read this entire skirmish either, but it's very brutal. Beowulf, although he's bigger than Grendel's mother, cannot dominate her. He can't get his sword out to work either. So he tries the same strategy that he used when he was successful with Grendel. He tries to rip off her shoulder. <laughs> then the Prince of Wargeats, warming to this fight with Grendel's mother, gripped her shoulder and laid about him in a battle frenzy. He pitched his killer opponent to the floor, but she rose quickly and retaliated, grappled him tightly in her grim embrace. The sure-footed fighter felt daunted. The strongest of warriors stumbled and fell. So she pounced on him and pulled out a broad, wetted knife. Now she would avenge her only child. But the mesh of chainmail on Beowulf's shoulder shielded his life and turned the edge and tip of the blade. The son of Ethel would have surely perished, and the Geats lost their warrior under the wide earth had the strong links and locks of this war gear not helped to save him. Holy God decided the victory. It was easy for the Lord, the ruler of heaven, to redress the balance once Beowulf got back on his feet. Then he saw a blade that boded well, a sword in her armory, an ancient heirloom from the days of the giants, an ideal weapon. One that any warrior would envy, but was so huge and heavy of itself, only Beowulf could wield it into battle. So if we're counting lines, this is the center of the poem. And what happens, Beowulf has come to the end of his planning. His weapons have failed him. His hand-to-hand combat has failed him. And the text says it's at this moment that God intervenes. A sword just magically appears, and it's special. He kills Grendel's mother with a sword from her own home. It's an interesting twist. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it kind of reminds me of Paulo Coelho and and the alchemist, you know, a little magical realism there, where he says, if you're living properly, the universe will conspire to help you. And, you know, this unexpected, unplanned weapon gives Beowulf the victory. And and when it does, uh, the sun or heaven's candle to use an Anglo-Saxon kenning shines down. So the shielding's hero, hard-pressed and enraged, took a firm hold of the hilt and swung the blade in an arc, a resolute blow that bit deep into her neck bone and severed it entirely, toppling the doomed house of her flesh. She fell to the floor. The sword dripped blood. The swordsman was elated. 
A light appeared and the place brightened the way the sky does when heaven's candle is shining clearly. You know, Christy, isn't the sun also an archetype? Yes. <laughs> After oh, that, we got a few. Gruesome description. You see the sun shining down the, what do they call it? Heaven's candle. It, you know, a sun means renewal, new life, hope, God. And I like that the light shines down in hell at this moment. This is an important idea. I think that when we see the fight between Grindel and Beowulf, uh, we see the poet emphasizing the importance of being brave, you know, be a monster to fight the monster. The emphasis in this fight is very different. The emphasis here is this journey to hell. We didn't read the whole thing because it's long, but the descent to hell was long. The journey to hell is long. It's through serpent-infested waters, sheer chaos, and when you know Beowulf gets to the bottom, the only thing that's waiting for him is this fight of his life, and he almost dies. It's the perfect picture of some of the greatest struggles that we might face. Uh, at some point, you know, all of us will probably make a journey to some version of hell. I'd say almost everyone, and uh, as pre- prepared as you must be, um, it will take God or the universe conspiring with you to win against the monster, whatever that looks like. But if we keep fighting, the emphasis emphasis of the story is positive. I mean, Beowulf prevails and the light shines down. You know, we talked about this when we discussed The Hobbit, but I want to mention it again. In stories where the hero goes to the underworld, in every case, if you come back, <laughs> you're going to be changed. You can't go to the underworld and come back the same person. And what we'll see, and you remember, this is the bale-bone description of who Beowulf is. There's not a lot of personalized characterization of this character. But even still, we will see a great change in Beowulf. He's going to go down a great thing, but he will emerge to eventually become a great king. You know, Beowulf looks around Grindel Mother's lair, and, and he sees all kinds of treasure. I mean, she's been hoarding, but he takes none of it. Well, mostly none of it. He takes two things with him. He'll take the hilt of this sword that he just talked about, but even the sword won't survive the fight. He will also bring back Grendel's head. Uh, He'll have to cut it off first, though. Beowulf's trip to the bottom was long, but the trip to the top doesn't take near as long. No, it doesn't. And he's dragging this enormous head with him. I mean, Grendel's head apparently produces so much blood as he comes out of the water that the shieldings leave and go home thinking that Beowulf is dead. I noticed that. You know, everyone thinks he's dead. Uh, the Thanes think he, his Thanes think he's dead too. But fortunately, they decide to stick around. When Beowulf emerges from the water, his sword, and the sword's name is Hrunting, it didn't work. Uh, He has it, and he has the hilt of the sword that he took from Grindel's mother that did work. He's wearing his mail. He has this helmet, and he's hauling Grindel's head, which will take four thanes to host and haul on a sphere, on a spear back to Herat. When they get back to Herat, Beowulf will present the hilt of the winning sword to Hrothgar, who is called Son of the Halfdane here. And in the speech, Beowulf is more humble. He acknowledges that he almost died, and he credits God for his success. Let's listen to Beowulf's speech. 
So, son of half-dame, prince of the shieldings, we are glad to bring this booty from the lake. It is a token of triumph, and we tender it to you. I barely survived the battle underwater. It was hard fought, a desperate affair that could have gone badly. If God had not helped me, the outcome would have been quick and fatal, although hunting is hard-edged. I could never bring it to bear in battle, but the Lord of men allowed me to behold, for he often helps the unbefriended, an ancient sword shining on the wall, a weapon made for giants there for the wielding. Then my moment came in the combat, and I struck the dwellers in that den. Next thing, the damson sword blade melted, it bloated, and it burned in their rushing blood. I have wrested the hilt from the enemy's hand, avenged the evil done to the Danes. It is what was due, and this I pledge, O Prince of the Shieldings. You can sleep secure with your company of troops in Herat Hall. Never need you fear for a single thane of your sept or nation. Young warriors are old, that lane waste of life that you and your people endured of yore. Then the gold hilt was handed over to the old lord, a relic from long ago for the venerable ruler. That rare smith work was passed on to the prince of the Danes when those devils perished. Once death removed that murdering, guilt-steeped, God-cursed fiend, eliminating his unholy life and his mother's as well. The speech goes on a little longer, but we don't have time to read it all. So, Christy, what do we make of this triumphant return (laughs) and this presentation of the sword hilt to King Rothgar? I know they're long, and I know we don't have time to read them, but I do like them. It's where we see the values of the Anglo-Saxons and where we see exactly what they want their readers to understand, or their listeners, really, I guess, when they hear these stories themselves. You know, I'm reminded of what Tolkien said to C.S. Lewis. Uh, Well, C.S. Lewis had famously um, said to Tolkien that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. That's the quote. And Tolkien famously responds and say, no, they're not lies. In fact, they are the essential truth the primary reality. What we're seeing in these stories, we can understand through the speeches. In the first two-thirds of the poem, the emphasis is on fighting and killing monsters. How does one defy and triumph over evil? Beowulf the Thane, that's what he does. He's faced and he fought Grendel, and he voluntarily goes to hell and back, almost dying in the process. But he emerges changed. And we see this change in this first speech. What does he do? He's giving Hrothgar something. Now, this is interesting and in some ways unexpected. He doesn't owe Hrothgar anything. He's not Hrothgar's thing. He's Higelak's thing. To the contrary, Hrothgar owes him something. But Beowulf's first act is to give a gift. To me, this signals a change. He's not a thane chasing glory. He's a gift giver. That's the term the Anglo-Saxon poet uses for king. Beowulf's not a king here, but he's acting like one. He's acting in a way that demonstrates true leadership. Leadership is not being the biggest thane in the room, the one with the most power or the most money or the best breeding. You know, leadership is this mindset shift. It's not what I can take from you. It's what I can give you. It's a complete reversal in thinking, a change in worldview. The rest of the poem is an expression of how one acts as a king, as a leader. What's the difference between a good king and a dragon? What does one do with power after you get it? 
It's one thing to become a hero, especially if you have nothing before. Uh, but what if you're sitting on wealth? What if you can hold gold or hoard gold if you want to? What if you're powerful? What if you can breathe fire? We've seen more than one leader over the centuries rise to leadership only to emerge not as a king, but as a dragon. If it takes a monster to overcome a monster, if it takes going to hell to become noble, what does it take to be a good king? And do all leaders, do all kings have to slay dragons? These are some of the final questions of Beowulf and the ones that we'll be talking about next episode. But as we leave this one, let's give Hrothgar the last word. He sees in Beowulf not just a monster slayer, but now a protector of his people, one who upholds justice and truth. And for this reason, he wants to be his friend. Then everyone hushed as the son of Halfdane spoke this wisdom. A protector of his people, pledged to uphold truth and justice and to respect tradition, is entitled to affirm that this man was born to distinction. Beowulf, my friend, your fame has gone far and wide. You are known everywhere. In all things, you are even-tempered, prudent, and resolute. So I stand firm by the promise of friendship we exchanged before. Forever you will be your people's mainstay and your own warrior's helping hand. Well, next episode, we will pick up from here and finish looking at Hrothgar's speech to the young Beowulf. Then we have to skip 50 years into the future to see how Beowulf's life ends. There's no suspense here. Beowulf, by the way, we know that he will face the dragon. We know that he will face weird. He will die. But we also know it's not all that tragic. And we will see what the Anglo-Saxons think was a life well lived. Well, there is a lot to unpack in 3,000 lines. Um, And we hope you're enjoying it as much as we are. Thank you for listening this week. Uh, Next week, we will conclude our discussion of Beowulf. If you've enjoyed the series, please honor us by leaving a positive review or comment either on our podcast app or our YouTube channel, which we would like to remind you all is out there. So uh, please give us a five-star rating. Share this episode with a friend via email link, a text message, post it on your social media. If you're a teacher, don't forget to check out our website. You can find links to all of our episodes as well as listening guides for classroom instruction. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.